Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello there, fellow Flyers. Welcome again to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. I hope you all had a relaxing and enjoyable holiday season with your families and friends. Happy New Year to you all. It's 2020. We all apparently made it to 2020, so that's pretty good. It's all icing on the cake from here on out. I'm pleased to be here in this moment in time, sharing planet Earth with you all while we all coexist Let's make 2020 an amazing year. I have a good feeling about this year. This is the 14th episode of Plane Crash Podcast, and today we'll be focusing on British Midland Flight 92, a scheduled flight from London Heathrow Airport in the UK to Belfast International Airport in Northern Ireland on the night of January 8th, 1989. Thanks to all of you out there that have been befriending us on Twitter and writing reviews on Apple Podcasts. The good reviews have really been flowing in lately, and let me tell you, they make me feel warm inside. Thank you guys, sincerely. We read all the reviews, and your supportive words make us want to get off our butts and make you a new episode. Let's just say the Plane Crash Podcast is a sailboat on a peaceful and calm sea, and your positive reviews? Well, they are the winds that we catch in our sail and use to push ourselves across the water to our desired destination, and that desired destination is a new episode completed and online for you to enjoy. Our guest today on the podcast is one of my personal faves, producer of the podcast and all-around cool cat, Miss Tess Andrade. How are you doing, Tess? Hey, everyone. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. And I have to say, I loved that sailing analogy that you just made. Yeah, I do what I can. I have to <laughs> beg for reviews. I have to come up with a creative way to ask people to review. Yeah, well, I just like imagining our ship on a windless sea. Yeah, well, it's up to people out there to push us to the shores. <laughs> to blow us to the shores with their 
mind-blowing reviews. Yeah, which I have been mind-blowing and great, and <laughs> I appreciate been. it, people. So, Tess, did you have a good Christmas? Yeah, I had a great Christmas. I uh, got to see my family in Boston, took a trip to New York to see some friends, and it, yeah, it was really relaxing. What airlines did you fly? I flew United and Delta. Nice. Back. Did you have a good flight experience? Yeah, no complaints. It was actually really seamless. Both ways were good. I especially enjoyed Delta. Yeah. I flew United and I flew American, and I felt that both both experiences, I flew economy because I can't afford to do anything else. Mm-hmm. It was very tight back there. They really are packing them into economy. When that mm-hmm. person in front of me put their seat back, there was no chance of me getting out mm-hmm. of that seat anymore. Getting it a little stingy with the square footage. Yeah, give us some space, people. Yeah, I, I've had enough leg room on my end, and my seatmates were actually really nice. I got to talk to them a bit on the way back from Boston. Nice. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, it was a pretty sad start to the year for the aviation community. On January 8th, 2020, just a few days ago, Ukraine International Airlines Flight 752 took off from Tehran Imam Khomeini Airport in Iran at 6.12 a.m. local time. Two minutes after takeoff, as the plane was climbing in altitude and had reached 4,620 feet above ground level, the plane suddenly changed its course by 24 degrees and crashed moments later, 10 miles north of the Tehran airport. Flight 752 had a crew of nine 167 passengers for a total of 176 passengers on board. All 176 human beings were killed in the accident. The plane was en route to Kiev, Ukraine. Apparently, Tehran to Kiev to Toronto is a popular route for Iranians with dual citizenship that live in Canada to visit Iran and return back to Canada. 63 Canadians died in the crash, 82 Iranians, 10 Swedes, 3 Germans, 11 Ukrainians, 7 Afghanis, 3 Brits were amongst those that died as well. It was a very sad day for everyone. After three days of denying blame and claiming that the plane crash was due to a technical error, on January 11th, the Iranian government announced that the plane was accidentally shot down by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. When the plane was mistakenly thought to be a U.S. cruise missile, videos have been posted online and the New York Times have confirmed their authenticity that show a streak of light heading up from the ground against the night sky, which looks like a missile ascending, followed by an explosion in the sky, which looks like a missile striking a plane. Ukrainian investigators found the top section of the plane's fuselage and it had little holes in it, consistent with the kind of damage that shrapnel from a missile would leave. Photos were taken at the crash site as well that show the remnants of a detonated missile. In the days prior to Flight 752, tensions between Iran and the United States have been increased due to the killing of the Iranian general, Hassam Soleimani, by a drone attack from the United States and a subsequent retaliatory attack by the Iranians where they launched 15 missiles at U.S. military bases in Iraq early in the morning of January 8th, just a few hours before Flight 752 took off from the airport. So Tess, this is looking very similar to Korean Airlines Flight 007 from 1983. I think the easy and one-dimensional take is that this is Iran's fault for shooting down the plane, but I kind of think it takes two to tango, and this is an example of what can happen when you create a dangerous, intense environment through questionable military and foreign policy decisions. What do you think? Well, I think Iran is obviously directly to blame because Mm -hmm. they shot off that missile, but I think it was in reaction to the U.S. ratcheting up tension Mm -hmm. um, by doing what they did. So um, it's sort of a domino effect where, you know, you could point at 
a I lot agree. Of people. I think it's a complex situation and I don't think it deserves a one dimensional answer. I think, I think there were missiles in Iran and they shot off a missile and took down the plane. I think they were paranoid and had, there was a tense environment because the U S was engaging them and ratcheting up ten- tensions. As you said, I think the Russians gave these missiles to the Iranians that apparently didn't, you know, secure them or know how to use them very well. So I think a lot of people are to blame, and it's a sad thing that 176 people died. It's always the innocent that died. It's never these government families. It's not the leader from Iran or the leader in the United States family that have to suffer. I saw a picture online that was really upsetting. It was a couple, and they had two daughters. They're from Edmonton, and they're all gone. And that's upsetting to me that they didn't get to live their lives to the fullest and they were just looking to go on vacation, looking to go on a trip, and they you know, have to pay with their lives because we can't deal with our problems, apparently. Right, yeah. And the political leaders are all just thinking about strategy and what will look good for them. They're not thinking yeah. about the human cost of their decisions. I agree. I feel like to some degree right now they're probably just thinking about how to spin this, you know, in the United States, they're probably thinking, how can we spin this to make the Iranians look bad? And the Iranians are like, oh, how can we not accept blame? They tried to, you know, lie for three days because they thought it was going to make them look bad. And then when there was evidence that was irrefutable, they're like, okay, yeah, we accidentally shot it down. Well, hopefully this spells the end to this, you know, Iranian-American conflict for now. Both sides get to play with their little military toys and 176 human beings died. Hopefully between Korean Airlines Flight 007 and now Ukraine International Airlines Flight 752, we can remember the consequences of letting simmering tensions exist between two powerful nations, and we can look for paths of resolution so ordinary human beings can live happy and healthy lives. Yes, I hope so. Well said, Michael. Yeah, that's the whole point of this podcast and the whole point of life is to make a mistake learn from the mistake and don't repeat it in the future. So hopefully this can be seared into people's minds of a cost when you escalate tensions. Absolutely. Well, let's get to our sponsor. Our sponsor for today's podcast is BetterHelp. What is BetterHelp? BetterHelp is the world's largest online counseling service. It's 21st century therapy. What Uber is to car rides, BetterHelp is to therapy. BetterHelp costs less than traditional therapy. You can talk with a licensed therapist via video chat or over the phone, and you can message your counselor 24 hours a day from the comfort of your home. You're not confined to the traditional nine to five hours of typical therapists. You can schedule a session that works around your hours and your needs. BetterHelp is great for people that lack options in their area. Maybe the local therapist is someone you went to high school with, and to keep your privacy and see someone else, you'd have to drive an hour out of your way. Well, now you don't have to. If you go to betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod, you get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. There you fill out a questionnaire, sign up, and they'll match you with a licensed counselor that specializes in your area of need. How do you like your therapist and experience with BetterHelp so far, Tess? It's been great. My therapist was super compassionate, smart, and always available to chat. Mm-hmm. I have nothing but good things to say about it. It's been fantastic. Yeah, I've liked it too. My therapist, her name's Carolyn, and she's very kind. Every Friday, she sends me this link with healthy mental thoughts and healthy mental practices. Um, I think talking out your problems or concerns or goals in life is healthy. So if you're out there and you're uh, interested, go to betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. 
I like to mention at the top of every episode that I'm not an expert on aviation by any stretch of the imagination. Not a pilot. I didn't go to aviation school. I'm just an anxious flyer. And this podcast is an attempt to tamp down some of that anxiety around flying by exposing myself to this topic that I'm fearful of. We realize that every plane accident we discuss is a tragedy in the lives of many human beings out there. We don't want to be disrespectful or inconsiderate of that fact. We just see plane accidents as historical events worth talking about. We think discussing what happened, why it happened, and learning the changes made to the air travel system because of each accident is helpful in understanding why air travel is as safe as it is today. Hopefully some of you out there find this discussion similarly useful. British Midland Flight 92 was a scheduled flight from London Heathrow Airport in London, England to Belfast International Airport in Northern Ireland on January 8, 1989. The plane was a Boeing 737-400. The Boeing 737-400 was a brand new plane on the market at the time. The first Boeing 737-400 was released into the commercial airline market in September of 1988, only four months earlier. This particular plane used for Flight 92 was manufactured in 1988 and was given its Certificate of Airworthiness on November 3rd, 1988. It only had 521 flight hours, so at the time of the incident it was virtually a brand new plane, only two months old. Earlier in the day, on January 8th, the plane had flown from London to Belfast, then from Belfast back to London. Flight 92 was the third leg of the day between these two cities for this plane, scheduled to go again from London to Belfast. This plane used for Flight 92 was configured to have 156 passenger seats, 26 rows of seats with three seats on each side of the aisle. The captain of Flight 92 was Captain Kevin Hunt. He was 43 years old at the time of the flight, He trained to be a pilot in 1964 and 1965 at the London School of Flying, and then was hired by British Midland Airways in 1966. So at the time of the incident, he had been with the company for around 23 years. Captain Hunt was initially a first officer with the airline and then became a captain in 1974. He had 13,176 flight hours, but only 23 hours flying this brand new Boeing 737-400 series aircraft. The first officer of British Midland Flight 92 was David McClellan. First officer McClellan was 39 years old at the time. He studied to be a pilot at simulated flight training at Hearn Airport in 1983. He worked for a couple different air transport companies before arriving at British Midland Airways in 1988. First officer McClellan had 3,290 flight hours and only 53 hours on this new Boeing 737-400 series plane. Flight 92 had six flight attendants plus the two pilots for a total crew of eight and 118 passengers for a total of 126 human beings on board. British Midland Airways Flight 92 radios over to the tower at London Heathrow. Tower Midland 92 ready for departure. And the London Tower radios back. Midland 92, you're cleared for takeoff. And Flight 92 takes off from London Heathrow Airport at 7.52 p.m. local time. It's just a typical flight for the first 13 minutes. Flight 92 is ascending in altitude shortly after taking off, and the plane climbs to 6,000 feet, leveling out over a cloud layer for a few minutes. Shortly after, Flight 92 heads towards its planned cruising altitude of 35,000 feet. At 8.05 p.m., 
13 minutes after takeoff, as the plane passes through 28,000 feet, trying to get to 35,000 feet, suddenly a severe vibration is felt throughout the passenger cabin and in the cockpit. A loud rattle was audible in the cockpit voice recorder, and the smell of fire, like burning rubber or hot metal, was noticed by the pilots and passengers. First Officer McClellan says, we got, we, got, we got a fire. We got a fire coming through. McClellan is saying there's a fire in one of the engines. Captain Hunt asks, which one is it? McClellan replies, it's the, left, it's the right one. Captain Hunt says, okay, throttle it back. The auto throttle for Flight 92 is disengaged, and the throttle for the number two engine is pulled back, reducing thrust to the right engine, and the vibration suddenly subsides. The smell of smoke seems to dissipate as well. Captain Hunt then turns off the autopilot and takes control of the aircraft for the rest of the flight. First Officer David McClellan handles most of the radio communications. 19 seconds elapsed between the onset of the vibration and the throttle of the number two engine being pulled back. Will I give a call then? First Officer McClellan asks his captain. Captain Hunt replies, yep. McClellan radios over to London Air Traffic Control. Hi, London. It's Midland 92. We have an emergency situation at the moment. It's looking like an engine fire. We're attempting to close the engine down. We'll keep you advised. The London Tower radios back. Roger, Midland 92. Captain Hunt says over the plane's PA, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, nothing to worry about. Could you fasten your seatbelt for the moment? Thank you. The tower at London tells the cockpit of Flight 92 that they're 30 miles away from Birmingham and can divert to Birmingham or Castle Donington. Castle Donington is where East Midlands Airport is located. British Midland Operations radios over to the plane to divert to East Midlands, please. After reducing power to the right engine and having the shuddering throughout the plane go away and the smell of smoke fade, the two pilots feel like they've properly identified the problem with the aircraft, and they start going through the checklist to shut down the right engine and successfully shut it down. Captain Hunt then radios over to British Midland Operations. Yeah, uh, we've had an engine running rough, and uh, we've been getting some smoke into the cockpit, which uh, by shutting the engine down, looks like we've stopped it. The flight service manager for Flight 92 which is like the managing flight attendant, then enters the cockpit. Captain Hunt asks him, did you get smoke in the cabin back there? The flight service manager replies, we did, yes. Captain Hunt then asks the flight service manager to clear up the cabin, get everything packed away. A minute later, the flight service manager returns to the cockpit and says to the pilots, sorry to trouble you, the passengers are very, very panicky. So to try and calm the nerves of the passengers on the plane that were literally shook up by the first vibration episode, Captain Hunt gets on the PA and says, uh, Ladies and gentlemen, this is Captain Hunt. Sorry I didn't get back to you a few minutes ago. We've been having a little bit of a problem with our right-hand engine. It's produced some smoke into the cabin. We've closed the engine down. That in itself is no problem at all. I do hope you are feeling a little bit better about it now. There's actually no problem here at all. Thank you. For the next 10 minutes, Flight 92 heads towards East Midlands Airport in Castle Donington and moves from communication with London Air Traffic Control to Manchester Air Traffic Control. Flight 92 is given an ILS approach for runway 27 at East Midlands. First Officer McClellan spends about two minutes attempting to program the flight management system to display the landing pattern at East Midlands, but he's unsuccessful in doing so. McClellan says, the ILS, she's not taking the ILS. Doesn't seem to want to take selections, Kevin. Captain Hunt replies, 
go back to the initial approach. The time is now 8.12 p.m., seven minutes into this emergency, and Captain Hunt tries to review the choices they made in trying to diagnose the problem. Captain Hunt talks to himself out loud, sharing his internal thought process with his first officer. Hunt says, now what indications did we actually get? Just rapid vibrations in the airplane and a uh, smoke? McClellan joins in and says, smoke, smoke coming into the cockpit. Unfortunately, in this crucial moment when the two pilots are trying to process what just happened, air traffic control interrupts the conversation and gives Flight 92 a new heading for East Midlands. Air traffic control clears Flight 92 to descend to 4,000 feet, and they give Flight 92 a new radio frequency to communicate on. It's a tough situation because it seems as though Captain Hunt might have been able to review the situation from a different mindset right here, might have made some realizations that he might have missed the first time through, but the air traffic control communication distracts him, and he doesn't return to questioning his or his first officer's decision-making. At 8.17 p.m., the approach checklist was completed, Flight 92 is 17 miles from East Midlands Airport and is now at 6,500 feet. At 8.18 p.m., Flight 92 changes its heading to 220 degrees, makes a slow turn towards the airport. Air traffic control says Midland 92, 4 miles from touchdown, wind check 240, 15 knots. Midland 92, we're at visual, checks are complete, First Officer McClellan responds. McClellan then asks Captain Hunt, do you want to have your rudder zero? Are you happy enough? Captain Hunt replies, yes, please, wouldn't mind. Oh, bloody hell, there's the blue flashing lights turning out. Air traffic control says, Midland 92, this is tower. Which engine is shut down, please? Eh, we shut down number two engine. That's the right-hand engine, First Officer McClellan replies. That's confirmed, adds Captain Hunt. It's now 8.20 p.m., 15 minutes since that first vibration. The plane's now at 3,000 feet. Captain Hunt, in an effort to level the plane out at 3,000 feet for a moment, increases power to the number one engine, the left engine. Suddenly, with the throttle being pushed forward and more fuel being sent to the number one engine, the horrible vibrations are back and the plane is violently shuddering again. Jesus, we're having trouble with our second engine now as well. Come on, First Officer McClellan exclaims in the cockpit. Copy that, Tower. We've got problems with both engines, Captain Hunt adds. We've got both engines now giving us trouble, First Officer McClellan radios over. Air traffic control says, that is copy, that is copy, 92. Flight 92 is cleared to descend to 2,000 feet, and slowly the plane descends, but the cockpit now thinks they're having the second engine issue. At 2,000 feet, the landing gear is lowered as well. Fire bell number one, fire in the number one left engine. Should I shut it? First Officer McClellan asks. No, Captain Hunt replies. First Officer McClellan says, there's no keeping her. Try and stretch her, Kevin. At 8.23 p.m., 900 feet off the ground, the left engine starts to give out. She's not going, First Officer McClellan screams. Try and bring the other one up, Captain Hunt says. He's asking his first officer to try and restart the right engine that they shut down 15 minutes ago. She's not going, Kev, McClellan says. The first officer tried to restart the right engine, but these massive jet engines are not like car engines where you can just turn a key and have it start in a second. They take time to start on the ground, or if you're in the middle of the sky, you have to be going pretty fast to get the fan blades turning and get the engines to start. Unfortunately, they're 900 feet off the ground, just lost power to the one engine that was operating, and they're losing speed and starting to stall. First Officer McClellan was unable to get the right engine to start. 
Captain Hunt pulls up on the nose of the plane to try and make the runway. The fire warning system for the left engine goes off 17 seconds later, and seven seconds after that, the ground proximity warning goes off in the cockpit. McClellan shouts in the cockpit, Try for the clear area on the right there. Try for the clear area. At 8.24 p.m., Captain Hunt announces over the PA, Prepare for crash landing. Two seconds after the prepare for crash landing, the stick shaker warning goes off. The plane is stalling now, and it's falling out of the sky. The plane has no power. The speed has fallen to 130 miles per hour, not fast enough to keep a heavy Boeing 737 in the sky. The plane is dropping towards the earth at a rate of 8.5 feet per second towards the M1 motorway. The M1 motorway is like an eight-lane highway just outside the East Midlands Airport. As the plane descends towards the ground, First Officer McClellan says, Shit, we'll pop the motorway. Ten seconds after the prepare for crash landing announcement by Captain Hunt, still at 8.24 p.m., Flight 92 crashes onto the ground at the east side of the M1 motorway. After the plane slams into the ground, it becomes airborne again, hovering above for a few seconds before slamming into the ground again on the other side of the motorway, the western side, where it runs up against an embankment. The plane broke into three main pieces. The nose of the plane broke off from the passenger cabin and faced uphill. The middle of the passenger cabin broke off as another piece, and that also faced uphill. The tail of the plane broke off from the middle of the passenger cabin, and that flipped upside down. Rescue crews quickly arrived and sprayed the plane with foam. A British Midlands engineer was able to enter the flight deck and turn off the engine start switches and fuel valves, which kept the fire from taking over the plane. Also, Flight 92 was very lucky to have crashed and run up the side of a hill, basically. This made it so that any fuel that was escaping the plane ran down the hill and away from the plane, which helped prevent a devastating fire from occurring. 39 passengers died immediately from the crash. Eight more passengers would go on to pass away from serious injuries for a total of 47 fatalities from the crash of Flight 92. There were 79 survivors. Rescue efforts took eight hours. Captain Hunt was pulled from the wreckage two hours after the crash. Due to the impact of the crash and the plane's design, overhead bins fell down on passengers and killed or seriously injured many of the people on the plane. The floor of the cabin was problematic as well. Many of the rows of seats in the passenger cabin accordioned upon impact and crushed passengers' legs. There were many leg injuries due to the crash of Flight 92. One passenger recalled that when the plane came to a stop, he looked to his side, and suddenly a tree branch was right next to his face, in between him and his wife that had flown next to him during the flight. The embankment that the plane crashed into was heavily wooded. Again, 47 human beings died on British Midlands Flight 92, and there were 79 survivors. So what happened? How did a brand new Boeing 737-400 have issues with both engines? Engine failures happen all the time, but it's generally not a big deal because a plane can fly along, glide, descend, and make an emergency landing with only one operating engine. Was this just a case of really bad luck that both engines went down, or is there something more to the story? Well, investigators looking at the crash of Flight 92 quickly realized that one of the engines was in perfect working condition. Unfortunately, the engine that was in perfect working condition was the right engine that was shut down two minutes and seven seconds after the first vibration episode occurred. So, remind me, what caused them to diagnose the right engine as the problem? Well, I'm going to get into that right now. 
At 8.05 p.m. on Flight 92, a fan blade in the number one left engine, due to the speed, temperature, and altitude, experienced flutter, or vibratory instability, broke off from the engine, causing damage to the fan blade and puncturing a fuel line, causing fire. So at this point, the entire plane feels the vibrations due to the damage in the number one engine, the left engine. The plane is shaking and smoke starts coming into the cockpit. The pilots realize they have an engine issue. First Officer McClellan then says, it's the left, it's the right engine, and the auto throttle is disengaged, and the throttle for the right engine is pulled back. At this moment, the plane stops vibrating, and the smoke seems to dissipate, which makes the pilots think that the first officer was correct. Must have been the right engine. That was the issue, because the second they pulled the throttle back on the right engine, vibrations went away, smoke started to clear up, right? Well, the pilots failed to realize that they had disengaged the auto throttle before pulling the throttle back on that right engine. And when they disengaged the auto throttle, less fuel was sent to the left engine, the one that was actually damaged. And this made all the symptoms of the real damage engine go away because mm-hmm. it was getting less fuel. On the instrumentation in the cockpit, there were a number of vibration gauges for both engines, and the left engine's vibration gauge was at maximum, but both pilots failed to notice this information. Another factor to consider was that this was a brand new plane to both pilots, a Boeing 737-400. In the previous model, the Boeing 737-300, cabin air was drawn in from the right engine. So when the pilots realize that they're having an engine issue and the flight deck and the cabin smell like smoke, they automatically assume the air in the cabin is being pulled from the right engine, and thus the right engine must be the engine that's having the issues. The pilots failed to realize or were never informed that this new Boeing 737-400 has a different design than its predecessor. On the 737-400, air is pulled into the cabin by both engines, not just the right engine. So the assumption that this new model worked just like the previous model was flawed. So after the pilots pull back the throttle on the right engine, the vibration and smoke goes away. So they think it's the right engine that's having the issue and they shut it down. They don't realize that turning off the auto throttle made it so less fuel was going to the left engine as well, which is what actually made the vibration and smoke go down. Then for the next 15 minutes, the plane is descending towards East Midlands Airport. They don't need much power from the engine, so they don't even notice that the only operating engine is still damaged. Such little fuel is being sent to that engine that the engine operated relatively normally. No indication was given to the pilots that the engine still operating was the damaged one. As the plane approaches 3,000 feet, to get the plane to level out as it's losing speed, they push the throttle of the left engine up, and the problems come back in full force. Suddenly, this number one engine's getting extra stress because it's got more fuel coming to it, and this causes even more damage and fire, and eventually at 900 feet, the number one engine fails completely. In the press, both pilots were blamed for the crash and ridiculed for shutting down the wrong engine. Captain Hunt suffered severe injuries to his spine and retired from flying. First Officer McClellan was fired, but later won an out-of-court settlement for wrongful dismissal. Many passengers saw the left engine on fire, and they were confused about Captain Hunt saying over the PA that they've shut down the right engine. One passenger said he recalled Captain Hunt saying that there was a fire on the right engine. The passenger thought to himself, well, I hope not because flames are coming out the left one. Several passengers saw that the left engine was having trouble, but everyone made the same assumption that these are professional pilots and they know what they're doing. 
I, as a passenger, certainly have nothing I could tell a pilot that he doesn't already know. Investigators discovered that the engines in the 737-400s were prone to vibration above 10,000 feet. Apparently, the company that manufactured the engines failed to test them in flight conditions. They only tested them in a laboratory, so they were unaware about these abnormally high vibration levels above 10,000 feet. The vibrations on these new engines led to stress on fan blades, which caused the number one engine of the Flight 92 to fail. The official report gave the following cause for the crash of British Midland Flight 92. The cause of the accident was the operating crew shut down the number two engine after a fan blade had fractured the number one engine. This engine subsequently suffered a major thrust loss due to secondary fan damage after power had been increased during the final approach to land. The following factors contributed to the incorrect response of the flight crew. Number one, the combination of heavy vibration, noise, shuddering, and an associated smell of fire were outside their training and experience. Number two, they reacted to the initial engine problem prematurely and in a way that was contrary to their training. Number three, they did not assimilate the indications on the engine instrument display before they throttled back the number two engine. Number four, as the number two engine was throttled back, the noise and shuddering associated with the surging of the number one engine ceased, persuading them that they had correctly identified the defective engine. And number five, they were not informed of the flames which had emanated from the number one engine, which had been observed by many on board, including three cabin attendants in the aft cabin. Oof. So, how did the crash of British Midland Flight 92 make flying safer for all of us today? Well, first off, this crash was a great lesson for all existing and in-training aviation pilots on the importance of properly identifying which engine is having issues when dealing with engine failure. Vibration gauges are important, and they should be observed when trying to diagnose the issue. Training programs now teach pilots to pay particular attention to vibration gauges and engine fire. Additionally, three members of the cabin crew on Flight 92 saw the left engine was emitting sparks, and they didn't share that information with the flight deck. So this crash highlighted the importance of good communication between entire flight crews. Any information flight attendants might have on an issue should be shared with the pilots so they have more information to work with. The investigation report also encouraged passengers to speak up if they see something strange. Share it with flight attendants so they can share it with the pilots. Pilots will make better decisions if they have more information, so if passengers see something odd, you have to speak up. Another lesson learned was that new engines need to be tested in flying conditions for flaws. Just because an engine works well in a warehouse doesn't mean it's going to work the same at 35,000 feet under much colder temperatures, much less dense air. So we learned that we need a more rigorous testing of our airplane engines, which has made engines more dependable today. All 737-400s were grounded at the time of this accident, and the engines were modified to be safe. A number of passengers were killed or injured during the crash because the floor of the new Boeing 737-400 was weak, causing rows of seats to accordion, which led to a lot of leg injuries and deaths. Also, the overhead bins fell down, causing a lot of head injuries. Boeing updated their design of these 737 floors to be much stronger, and overhead bins were better secured to the ceilings of 737s to prevent them from coming down as easily in future accidents. Lastly, there was a lot of analysis about head injuries and limb injuries due to Flight 92, and more emphasis was put on teaching the proper brace position to passengers. 
Passengers are now taught to sit far back in their seat, fasten their seatbelt firmly, bend at the waist, and put their top of their head in contact with the seat in front of them, place hands on the top of their head or down along their legs, and place feet flat on the floor. So as unfortunate as, as the crash of Flight 92 was, there were a number of lessons that were drawn from the crash that has made flying safer for all of us today. So let's bring in tests. Tests from my research at the time, it sounds like a lot was piled on the pilots for shutting off the wrong engine, but I kind of feel like that's pretty unfair to them. They're only as good as their training built them to be. Did you have any thoughts on this story? Do you think the pilots were 100% at fault, or do you think that that explanation is a little too one-dimensional? I definitely do. I, th- I don't think they were 100% at fault at all. I think they were reacting to a mechanical um, failure on the plane. And they didn't react in the ideal way. They diagnosed the problem a little too quickly. Um, but mm-hmm. but yeah, I think that it was kind of a combination of of issues. I was also really struck by the fact that you know, passengers and even flight attendants on the plane could see that the left engine was the one that was on fire Mm -hmm. and the pilot had communicated, you know, we're having issues with our right engine. And the Mm -hmm. fact that no one spoke up, even when the flight attend, the head flight attendant had been in the cockpit at one point, um, was really surprising to me. It's, it's just a shame. It's really sad. Yeah. I feel like everybody just kind of assumed these pilots probably have so many, you know, instruments in the cockpit that they are going to know so much more information than I have. And I I think it was kind of interesting that they say now passengers could, uh, should talk to a flight attendant and tell them if they see something weird. I feel like every time I'm on a flight, I hear some sort of like buzz that sort of sounds weird or some smell that I'm like, Oh God, should I tell someone? Yeah. It was actually really validating to hear you say that because I feel like I'm always the person on the plane that's saying, is that noise normal? Are we okay? Well, now it just doesn't hurt to ask somebody and a flight attendant will say, thank you for asking me, but this is actually the issue. So I think, uh, what struck me was that they, uh, their clue that something was wrong was to read the vibration gauge. And they couldn't read the gauges that well if the entire plane's shuddering, you know? Right. It's kind of like somebody's shaking you saying, hey, why can't you read this? And it's like, you keep shaking it. You know, it must have been very kind of unsettling at the time. And it must have been difficult to see if the entire plane is vibrating. And they did two things in rapid succession. They disengaged the throttle and then they brought down the uh, throttle to the right engine. Yeah, they disengaged the auto throttle, which was just sending fuel to both engines. And they didn't, I don't think they really realized that they disengaged the auto throttle because that totally brought down the amount of fuel going to the damaged engine. And then they brought down the throttle on the right engine and think, they saw the smoke go away, saw the vibrations go away, thought, hey, we solved the problem when they really solved the problem by sending less fuel to the damaged number one engine. Right. Yeah. I always feel bad um, Monday morning quarterbacking, yeah. not being an aviation expert mm-hmm. in any way. And it's just kind of feels like weird to make all these yeah, no, As- I think we we're talking but- about it and we're not we're not criticizing them at all. We're just yeah. explaining what happened and they would tell you that they made mistakes as well. One thing that I um thought of when I thought of this situation with Captain Hunt and First Officer McClellan is that in many ways they were prisoners of their life experience. I often use that phrase when I talk about politics with people that 
We all have our viewpoints and belief systems based upon the experiences that we've had in our lives. And if you're young and you work hard and you don't experience any health issues and you make money, then you say, hey, making money is easy. I'm going to be a conservative in life because all you need to do to make money is work hard because that's my life experience. If you have health problems or you have you work hard and you don't make money, maybe you're a little more sympathetic to the idea of you know getting some help from the government and maybe that pushes you in a more liberal direction. Uh, I, th- I would see Captain Hunt as being a prisoner of his life experience because he flew 13,000 hours, 7,000 of those hours were on DC-9s, and DC-9s, guess what? Their vibration gauges were really unreliable. So his entire life he was trained to fly a plane and kind of ignore the vibration gauges and think that those are unreliable. He didn't realize that on the 737-400, those vibration gauges, very reliable, very accurate. And if he hadn't had that experience of flying DC-9s all the time and ignoring vibration gauges, he would have had a different life experience and maybe been more apt to pay attention to those. Right, yeah. It seemed really tragic that they discovered you know, the source of the real problem when they were so close to the ground too. like, if they'd just been able to power up that right engine in time Mm -hmm. to land, everything would have been fine. Yeah, I agree with you. You've made this um, point on many previous episodes that a lot of these crashes have to do with so many coincidences, so many things that just were unlucky. And they're just so unlucky at times throughout this crash that they pull back the right engine throttle and suddenly the vibrations go away. So they think hey, we solved the problem. It was also unlucky that they were used to flying 737-300s where they thought the air conditioning was only run through the right engine. So when that smoke goes away, oh, then it must have been the right engine because we pulled the throttle back there. Another thing that was really unlucky was every time these pilots were talking to themselves, trying to kind of go over the steps that they took, um, make sure that they hadn't made a mistake in diagnosing the problem, the air traffic controller would interrupt their you know, met their mental stream and say, Hey, uh, here's a new radio communication frequency you need to pay attention to. So he kept on interrupting their thought process when they were about to solve that they might've made a mistake. And that was really unlucky as well. Right. Yeah. It almost feels like if they just had more time, they would have been able to kind of figure it out. But yeah, I guess. And if the, if that time. engine just could have lasted another 15 seconds or you know however long another minute 60 seconds they could have made it to the airport so if both engines go out on a plane though you're you're in trouble right you can't just glide down i think you can if you maybe complain can plan for it a little bit more like if you are up at thirty-five thousand feet and both your both your uh, engines go down then you can glide down you can know what you're getting yourself into you can know how you need to keep your flaps to have it sprung upon you at 900 feet, I don't think gave them enough time to plan for it. Plan their trajectory. Stalling. Yeah. So I think they were making assumptions that we're doing an approach for a plane with one engine, not a plane with no engines. Mm. So maybe their trajectory was different. I thought the first officer's first comment when the incident started was kind of revealing. McClellan says, it's the left, it's the right one. And to me, what he's actually saying is one thing there, which is I'm confused. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I don't know and I can't see clearly. And I'm making snap decisions. Yeah. Or he just should have, it should or, have triggered in the captain's mind that we don't know for sure. So we right. better check this out a little bit more. Right. Yeah. I had that same thought. One other thing about the, the 737-400 is that their instrumentation was different. It was computerized. It looked different than previous Boeing models. 
maybe this would have confused the pilots and made it a little bit harder for them interp to interpret these instruments that they weren't used to seeing. Captain Hunt gave an interview in a documentary in regards to um, when he was asked about being blamed for the crash, if it bothered him, he said, we were the easy option, the cheap option, if you wish. We certainly made a mistake. We both made mistakes, certainly not deliberately. And the question we would like answered is, why do we make those mistakes? Captain Hunt said to go from flying the 737-300 to the 737-400, all he had to do was attend a lecture in the morning and then see, uh, go to another lecture in a part of an afternoon, and that was it. Oh, man, that's really not fair to yeah. him. Yeah, one thing that I was going to say to you that I thought you would find interesting was that it seems like we're finding a common theme in with these Boeing. plane crashes Yeah, where they yeah. bring out a new plane that pilots aren't entirely familiar with give them inadequate training, and pilots make assumptions that this new plane operates just like the previous model, but it doesn't, right. and it leads to a crash. Yeah, it's, it immediately made me think of the Max 8s. Yeah. Hopefully, the next time that Boeing comes out with a new plane, and they try and sell everybody on the fact that it's just like the previous model, and you don't need a extensive training program for your pilots, we can say, hey, we've seen this story a number of times. Yes, we'll say, did you take the master class did you get in all your flight hours? Did you do a simulation? Yeah. Okay, you did. All right. These are all the differences. Even if they think that there are small differences, they, who would have thought that the, the air conditioning difference would make a huge deal to these pilots? You right. know, it was probably just an overlooked thing. But every single change needs to be highlighted and taught to pilots. Yeah, I have a lot of empathy for these pilots. I feel like even the way the report was phrased, pilot error due to blah, 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 mm -hmm. blah. It was really first and foremost a mechanical failure, in my opinion, yeah. and the and the and a lot pilots of reacted to it, um, maybe not you know poorly, but um, the the engine broke. Engine broke. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about that company that made an engine and never and tested test it in the it. sky. Like yeah. the engine's gonna be at thirty five thousand feet. Don't test it in a laboratory. See what it's like if it's really cold. See if it's what it how it operates when the air's less dense. You know. Take it up in a plane and try it on a plane without any passengers for a long period of time. Make sure it works. Right. Yeah. It's like it's like manufacturing running shoes and never actually running in them. I'm glad trying that to you sell them to up. the masses. I'm glad that you brought that up because more than anything, I think instead of pilot air, it's that engine. Those, right. The yeah. engines were the issue. Well, I think that's going to do it for uh, Flight 92. Thank you for all your hard work and your research. I'm that was trying. a really interesting one. Yeah. On Wednesday, December 11th, there was a congressional hearing held by the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee on examining the FAA's oversight of aircraft certification. Current FAA head administrator Stephen Dixon spoke before the committee, and the main highlight of the hearing was the revelation that in December 2018, the FAA, in an internal document, estimated that 15 more crashes would occur on the new Boeing MAX planes during the lifetime of the new Boeing MAX fleet if no updates were made to the aircraft or its software and no additional training for pilots were required. So to place this properly in the timeline of events, this document was from December 2018, a couple months after the first MAX-8 crash, which was Lion Air Flight 610, four months before the second MAX-8 crash of Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302. So this means that FAA knew something seriously was wrong with the Boeing MAX planes, Wrong enough that they estimated another 15 crashes might occur over the lifespan of the Boeing MAX fleet, 
Yet they didn't ground the Max 8 planes. They kept letting them fly domestically, and four months later, another Max 8 plane goes down in Ethiopia, just as they had predicted. Chairman of the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, Congressman Peter DeFazio from Oregon's 4th Congressional District, stated upon learning of the FAA's internal review, which was kept from the public, the FAA rolled the dice on safety of the traveling public and let the MAX continue to fly until Boeing could overhaul its MCAS software. DeFazio went on to say the FAA failed to do its job. It failed to provide the regulatory oversight necessary to ensure the safety of the flying public. FAA Administrator Stephen Dixon has only been in his current position for the past four months. Dixon was an executive at Delta Airlines and also was a former Air Force pilot. He stated before the committee that the MAX 8 would not be allowed to fly again until Boeing could prove that their software update for MCAS resolved the issues that brought down the Lion Air and Ethiopian Airlines flights, and that new and proper training for commercial pilots was implemented. He also stated that he'd be flying the new MAX 8s himself and wouldn't allow the planes back into the air until he could be satisfied that he could put his own family on a Boeing MAX plane without a second thought. So Tess, what do you think about the FAA knowing that these planes had an issue, choosing not to ground them, allowing Boeing to work on a fix while knowing full well that there was this underlying issue with the planes? I think that's um, pretty problematic. I, I don't imagine they'd be sending their families on those planes. Yeah. To me, it struck me as the FAA is um, basically operating like a corporation. They're supposed to be this, you know, safety body protecting our um, lives. It kind of reminded me of the movie Fight Club. You remember Edward Norton's junior's character? Uh, He evaluates the costs of recalls on dangerous products for companies, trying to see if the cost of a recall or the cost of paying off lawsuits from the families that are injured by this product is greater to a company. Instead of asking themselves, you know, the FAA, instead of asking themselves, what is the moral thing to do? What's the safest option for people we're supposed to be protecting? They ask themselves, what's best for Boeing? Let's cross our fingers and hope another crash doesn't happen. Right. Yeah. I mean, it just seems like it's all about money. They probably had stock in Boeing and all these financial interests. Totally. That's a good point. I think there's just too much coziness between regulatory agencies and corporate America. In sports, if you need an impartial referee to call a game for athletes, you don't hire someone that used to be on someone's team. You know, you can't be a, a Red Sox player and eventually be an umpire later in life, umpiring Red Sox Yankees games. In government, you need public servants to kind of be watchdogs over corporations. And clearly that line between the FAA and Boeing has been too blurred. Yeah. It makes me think of like, you know, the EPA getting cozy with companies like Monsanto and letting them give us these chemicals that are causing skin cancer and things like that. Yeah, totally. But the FAA is kind of at a disadvantage because a great engineer out there wants to get paid money and they're going to get paid a lot more money to work for Boeing or to work for an airline than they're going to get paid to work at the FAA. So we just need good human beings, smart human beings to step up and work in the public sector for the greater good. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting in telling that language about, you know, I'll fly the plane myself and Mm -hmm. I would put my own family on it. It seems like he's really appealing to people's sensibilities in that, you know, that's exactly what we want to hear. That is what I want to hear. I actually, even though he was an executive for Delta and is probably too cozy with corporate, you know, airline manufacturers and airlines, I did like the answers that he gave. I want to hear somebody say I would feel comfortable putting my family on that that plane. That I like that, so it didn't bother me. 
Boeing CEO Dennis Mullenberg was fired on December 23rd after a turbulent year for the airline manufacturer. He had been CEO since 2013. Boeing's chairman, David L. Calhoun, is now serving as CEO until January 13th. After January 13th, Chief Financial Officer Greg Smith will be the interim CEO until a permanent one is named. A lot of people criticize Mullenberg for being too optimistic about the return of the MAX 8 into service after the two MAX 8 crashes in late 2018 and early 2019. Families of the victims of these crashes also found his apologies to come across as insincere. Seems like the culture at Boeing was pretty flawed and this change was long overdue. What do you think, Tess? Time for uh, Boeing to put someone new in charge and try and move the company culture back in the right direction? Yeah, definitely. I feel like this past year, 2019 rather, was sort of a PR nightmare for Boeing. I can't imagine how that CEO must have felt, but yeah, well, I think he kind of steered the company in that direction. It was under his tutelage that the culture changed. There's been a ton of people coming forward saying, you know, uh, I wouldn't put my family on these planes, the people that were building the plane. So I think he's kind of responsible. This uh, next story is probably going to get under your skin a little bit. I read today that the fired Boeing CEO got a $62 million payout and 2,800 Boeing workers have been temporarily laid off due to a stop production in the Boeing MAX 8. How do you feel about that, Tess? Oh, I hate that. Yeah. Americans did- losing their jobs and he gets a huge payday and gets to walk away with millions. Yeah, it's upsetting. I mean, this guy gets $62 million to do a horrible job and 2,800 people, working class people, don't have jobs. Yeah, that makes no sense. Yeah. On Monday, December 16th, Boeing board members met up and announced a pause in the production of 737 MAX planes starting in 2020. That's where those 2,800 jobs went. Boeing released a statement said, we believe this decision is least disruptive to maintaining long-term production system and supply chain health. This decision is driven by a number of factors, including the extension of certification into 2020, the uncertainty about the timing and conditions of a return to service and global training approvals, and the importance of ensuring that we can prioritize the delivery of stored aircraft. We will continue to assess our progress towards return to service milestones and make determinations about resuming production and deliveries accordingly. During this time, it is our plan that affected employees will continue 737-related work or be temporarily assigned to other teams in Puget Sound. So Boeing has suspended production of the 737 MAX planes. Seems like they're learning a painful lesson that uh, taking shortcuts to save money in the short term might cost you more money in the long term, huh? Right, yeah, and cost human lives, which there's no value on that. Exactly. American Airlines and Citigroup are cracking down on customers that bend the rules in regards to mileage programs. Over the years, American Airlines Advantage members have been able to accrue miles through special promotions offered by Citigroup credit cards. Apparently, a number of AA Advantage members have been opening several Advantage accounts using multiple email accounts and even at times fake names to try and take advantage of these Advantage programs. After receiving their promotional bonus miles, they transfer the miles into their main account and book flights for free. Well, recently, American Airlines decided to lay down the law. American has been canceling flights booked by customers with miles acquired through these questionable means. One 28-year-old man named Caden Stern recently had found out one of his flights was canceled. Stern stated, I know I'm not innocent, but I don't think the way they're doing it is the way it should be done. Those sign-up bonuses weren't supposed to be gotten, but the rules didn't say I couldn't. What do you think, Tess? Is American being too hard on these people that just work the system? 
Are you happy that they're starting to crack the whip? I'm not happy that they're starting to crack the whip. I think those people are being wily and trying to work the system. But if the rules didn't say they couldn't do it, I think they should feel like they can do it. I disagree with you. I think we don't need a law for everything. Just be a decent person and don't try and take advantage of things just because. Like I, 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 I hold you know regular people to the same standard that I would hold the wealthy out there and the CEO of Boeing. Just be a decent person. Like, Do we need to spell out a law for every single thing? You just know what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Well, he obviously knew that he did something wrong. He said, I'm not innocent. He knew that he was... Right. If you're using fake names and stuff, you're gaming the system. Yeah, but canceling someone's flight is just... I think there, there would be a different way for them to go about it, don't you think? Yeah, well, I guess Imagine that's one way to get your everybody's attention. We're obviously talking about it. So yeah. people are like, the jig is up. Yeah, I, they just shouldn't be able to book the flight in the first place. Yeah, I good mean, point. They should uh, maybe have a, a more in-depth application to getting these accounts. Apparently, it was too right, easy yeah. to set one up. I, you should have to present your driver's license or something, some kind of ID. <laughs> <laughs> Good idea. Um, I just came up with that just now. <laughs> I like it. I, it kind of reminds me of like people that bring service dogs in restaurants that aren't clearly ser- clearly aren't service dogs. It's like, come on, do we need to tell you that you don't need to bring your service dog in the restaurant that isn't an actual service dog? I kind of don't know how I feel about service dogs on planes, too. I am completely fine with it. Yeah. I like uh I feel like uh airlines need to do a better job of helping people get their pets around the world. Right, yeah. You want to buy a seat? For your dog, that's cool. Maybe have pet-friendly flights where people know ahead of time. So if you're allergic to dogs, um, you don't have to be around it. But I feel like that with the service dog culture, too many people are lying. You know, if you have serious needs, you need a service dog. I totally support you. But there are too many people that don't need service dogs that are just trying to skirt rules. I think that people consider their pets to be like family members, mm-hmm. and the idea of putting your you know, your dear, dearest spike in the, um, in the passenger, what is it? The, the cargo hold. A cargo hold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, is just like far worse than having to maybe fudge some paperwork and get yeah. a therapist to register your dog. It's an emotional yeah, support well, dog. Some felt of your fellow passengers might be allergic to dogs or whatever pet you bring on. They have the right to a uh, pleasant flight as well. And I would also say maybe we don't need to shuttle dogs across the entire world. You know, the 1850s people didn't bring their dogs from like Boston to San Francisco, or maybe they did on a ship. But uh, I just don't know that, that you know, maybe you drop off your dog at your friend's house or you take your dog to a fun kennel. But I, I, I am not a fan of service dogs. Uh, I, I'm not a fan of people lying about their service, their regular dog and calling it a service dog. That's, and I'm also not a fan of the fact that airlines haven't made it easier for people to transport their dog. I think JetBlue allows you to buy a seat for your dog, but I'll I have like to that. look into that. More reasons to like JetBlue. Yeah, I think if you pay for your dog to have a seat, that's, that seems like the ideal situation. I agree with you. We solved it. We did. Allow, allow people to buy your dog a uh, seat. American Airlines also announced this past week that they will start offering non-binary gender options for booking flights on their website. American spokesman Ross Feinstein said in an interview, we recently completed a system update to offer non-binary gender selections. 
Taking care of our customers and team members is what we do, and we are glad to be able to better accommodate the gender preferences of all our travelers and team members. What do you think of that development, Tess? I think that's awesome. I've actually thought about that a lot when filling out forms, like, you know, for airline tickets and various forms online. Yeah. That needs to be everywhere. Why does it even matter? What's the difference to the airline? It's like, mind your own business. You don't need to make sure people have their ID and stuff, but you don't need to know male or female or what their associated gender is, right? Right. Yeah. It's like single or married. Who cares? Yeah, exactly. Lastly, another story concerning American Airlines. On a recent flight from Las Vegas to Florida, an American Airlines passenger was given a tough time by the flight crew for wearing a t-shirt that had the words Hail Satan on it. (gasps) Oh. Apparently, a few flight attendants confronted her about her shirt told her that unless she changed her shirt, that she'd be kicked off the plane because her shirt was quote-unquote offensive. The passenger put on an extra layer her husband was wearing and was allowed to fly, but took to social media after the flight to explain her ordeal. American Airlines refunded her fare after the story caught media attention. Uh, what do you think, Tess? Should airlines be censoring the words on T-shirts of their passengers? I was going to ask if that was you wearing the Hail Satan probably, shirt, but probably then was I heard it was a woman. Well, I have long hair, so maybe. Right, they're... yeah, and gender is just a you know construct. Yeah. So, um, no, I think you should be able to wear whatever you want. I agree, as long as it doesn't have like profanity on it. Right. Having Hail or... Satan on. I feel like if I had a Hail Satan shirt on, which I probably wouldn't wear, but if I had it on and they told me I had to change my shirt. I probably would do it just because I wouldn't want to like miss a flight just to win some like little battle. Oh, definitely. But yeah. Well, it sounds it, like she complied. Yeah, she complied. But the entire time I would be like changing my shirt, I would just say, I'm sorry. I thought this was America. I thought this was a free country. And I'd, you know, be changing my shirt and be like, I'm sorry. I thought this was America where you could speak your mind. Guess not. Yeah. I mean, I guess there is the question of like whether it made other passengers feel unsafe because it is, I mean, it's kind of I don't know. a little dark. Yeah, well, I'd say it's 2020 and people can, you know, put whatever they want on a t-shirt. As long like, as it's not What if you profanity. had a shirt that said, I have a bomb? Yeah, well, that's, you know, not funny. Hell, Satan's kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's objective. Well, uh, I think that's going to do it for today's episode <laughs> of the Plane Crash Podcast. I'd like to thank Tess Andrade, our wonderful producer, for being on the podcast. Anything you want to say thank to you. the people about 2020? Oh, I hope it's the best year yet. I truly agree with you, Michael, that this year, just have a good feeling about it. I think it's going to be a really good one. Yeah. I think uh, I'd like to thank all of you out there for the reviews. Um, if you're interested in BetterHelp, go to betterhelp.com forward slash Pod. And uh, 2020 is going to be an amazing year. What we've learned from recent world events is that we can't depend on world leaders to take care of us. We have to make our lives and communities better ourselves. No magic hand is going to come out of the sky to fix our lives. We just need to make the world better through kindness and being unselfish. So I want all of you to work hard in 2020. I want you to be a good person. Take care of your family, friends, yourself, strangers you don't even know. Let's eat healthy, exercise, read books, work hard, stay off our phones because social media is toxic and a lame way to spend an existence. Unless, of course, you're going to follow us on Twitter at Plane Crash Pod. Right, which you should. It's very healthy to do that. So be generous and grateful and kick ass in 2020. I love you guys and thanks for listening. I'm excited to talk with you more in the future and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye.